Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to the Dad Pod edition of Be Real. Guys, last month the moms had their turn, and uh, today in June, along with a bunch of great deals at car dealerships and stores, dads everywhere, but not really, just our two dads, Rod Ballard and Doug Pfeiffer, uh, get their moment in the sun. Noah Ballard, how are you? Great. How are you, uh, Chance? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited for this episode. We've already spoken to our fathers about uh, two of their favorite movies, and now we're speaking with each other. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Uh-huh. Did Dig Dug listen to Kathleen's pod? He do you think? sure did not. Yeah, I can. I mean, I can. I would probably bet you a thousand dollars that, like, my father didn't listen to Nancy's pod. So no lessons were learned in the interview format of this show. And <laughs> yeah, they really came to the table as uh, raw clay, didn't they? <laughs> Not to say that it wasn't like an enjoyable experience. Um, I had a nice chat with my dad. Yeah, but... I did too. We should say what these movies are. They selected, my father selected, 2005's Cinderella Man, the Ron Howard movie about the boxer James J. Braddock. And Noah, what did your dad select? Big Rod picked Chariots of Fire. The 1981 Best Picture winner about uh, Uh, Olympic running. Olympic running and the men who do it. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, which we want to start with, uh, we starting with Dig Dug today. I would love that. Okay. Um, just like last time, I think, uh, I, I probably need to synopsize quick cause we didn't do it in the discussion necessarily. Um, so this is a, the 2005 movie by Ron Howard stars Russell Crowe as Jim Braddock was basically a promising and successful light heavyweight boxer in the twenties. And that's what the movie opens with. Uh, until, like much of the country, he is completely ruined by the Great Depression. And we open back up with him and his wife, May, played by Renee Zellweger, and their three children living in just abject urban poverty uh, at the peak of the Great Depression in 1933. And he's got a broken hand. He has lost his luster as a fighter. And this is the movie of him working his way back and ultimately regaining the or not regaining but winning the heavyweight championship in 1935 uh anything else yeah america loves a comeback story i tell you yes indeed uh let's hear from douglas pfeiffer aka dig doug daily news got a lot of reporters here today a lot of people interested in this fight what do you got to say to your fans today jimmy I guess I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. I, uh, I know that these days not everybody gets a second chance. Well, on today, June the 19th, Father's Day 2016, I am thrilled to, to welcome my father, uh, Doug Pfeiffer, to be real guys. Dad, happy Father's Day. Well, thank you very much, son. It's uh, nice to talk with you. And, well, yeah, thanks for... Uh, setting aside some time what are you setting aside time from to to do a movie podcast on your special day sundays are kind of my laid back time uh, so i'm not really setting aside anything uh perfect family chores perfect perfect uh well in the selection of one of your favorite movies for us to discuss today uh we chose 2005's cinderella man which is uh a biopic about James J. Braddock winning the heavyweight championship in 1935 in a fight with Max Baer after suffering basically the depths of the Great Depression and as as tight and strenuous a financial situation as one could have aside from homelessness. Um, so it's it's a really like intense comeback story. But Dad... 
did we did we see this together in a theater? Yes, we did. As a matter of fact, I was thinking that too. What were what were the circumstances? How did you hear about it? Do you remember? Um, you know, I'm not sure which movie came out first. Was it there was a movie called Inside Man, and then there was Cinderella Man, and I made some joke about well, we should go see every movie that has the word man. <laughs> As all fathers and sons should. <laughs> in your youth, I instilled a an interest in boxing uh, in in you and. Uh, so I thought it'd probably be a good, interesting movie to go see. So, uh, yeah, just how we did it. Well, the reason I picked uh, Cinderella Man is not all one of the all-time great movies, but uh, I really enjoyed how it was uh, presented in, in the timepiece with uh, during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it told an amazing story of uh, that particular point in time, and. Me growing up in the Midwest, the Depression, although it was horrific uh, for everyone, it didn't play the same role because I grew up in a family of farmers, and even when times were really hard, farmers uh, always could find something to eat, and that didn't necessarily look like right. the case when they told the story in major cities. So, I mean, so you you were clearly not alive during the Great Depression, but I was trying to do the math last night. Were your parents uh, young teenagers during the Great Depression? They clearly lived through it. Yes, they were, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it was, it was when they got together with their brothers and sisters, uh, there would be more than one mention of the Great Depression and, and how once you've been through that, you never want to do it again. And they, I have memories of my father... Uh, just eating white bread and milk because he said a lot of times that's all he ate when he was a little kid was just out of habit later in his life yeah again i think it's a it was a learned food choice because they didn't have a whole lot of choices back then and so he kind of became a comfort food i think for him on occasion so Mm. you can imagine that but the other reason i like the movie is uh Having some older friends who were heavily into boxing, and they it was almost, uh, I suppose, along with baseball, it was the number one sport in this country. Right. And it was an interesting thing. And even as a kid, I remember uh, being by the radio with my parents and listening to fights with uh, Muhammad Ali and Sonny Liston. Yeah. Cassius Clay back then. But uh, we having the family sit around and listen to the fight on the radio was an amazing experience as a little kid. So let me ask you this, Dad. Were you familiar with the story or maybe just the story arc of Jim Braddock before we went to this movie? No, I didn't really uh, know a heck of a lot about it. It's kind of, you would think and maybe I would since Max Bear was actually born in Omaha, Nebraska. But That's right. Uh, I'm not hugely into following actors or actresses. I just, I'm looking for interesting movies that haven't been done before. And <laughs> Nothing's more original than a boxing comeback story, Dad. <laughs> well, I never really gave that much thought, but uh, yeah, yeah. and uh, having grown up with uh, Ron Howard as uh, Opie in, in uh, the Andy Griffith show, and realized that he became a major director, and uh, it was you know I was kind of curious to see one of his movies, that, uh, which I yeah I, I really thought was uh, pretty well done. I you know granted there was some you know basic movie flaws in the fact that these particular guys would go through these fights and uh, not look like they'd even really been in a fight. We both know how brutal the sport of boxing can be, especially on someone's face if they're not very good. Although I think in the movie they did a good job on a couple scenes of showing uh, uh, how effective a a brutal body shot can be. Uh, Uh Uh-huh those particular scenes where it looked like people got ribs broken and yeah they did a good job in that aspect of it one of my favorite things i think in just like the combat sequences and i i think this movie it it does great i mean we've laughed before about how and many people have about how ridiculous for instance the boxing scenes in rocky look right Absolutely. Just, there was a joke. It was almost like a, a, a watching a cartoon, but, you know, there was, that was the style of that movie, so, you know, that's completely acceptable and under those terms. So, And, of course, if you, they would have actually shown what James Braddock looked like in that 
in that day and age. You yeah. to remember, this is a guy who, in 1928, fought nine fights. In, in yeah. 29, he fought eight fights. In you bring, I think you bring up a really good point about this era in boxing being really interesting. And the best fighters today, Floyd Mayweather, Manny Pacquiao, they fight twice a year, maybe. Um, and they're, you know, they're big events every time. These guys were taking fights like they were like gigs at like playing a show at a bar. And being a Father's Day movie pick for me. Yeah. It showed James Braddock as what he would do as a father to, to keep that family together and what was necessary. And his, uh, you know, his scene of having to go and get welfare to get his kids back, uh, and then also repaying the quality of the... And a lot of... Ron Howard took some liberties with that movie and, and maybe made Max Bear look more like a villain than he actually was in real life because... Mm-hmm. Looking into it a little bit further, I hear pretty nice things said about Max Bear in general as, as, as a human being. And right. He did not enjoy killing people. But, yeah, but movies have to have a villain and they have to have a hero. Right. For whatever reason, so... But uh, I did like he showed the strength of of his uh, James Braddock's wife. I when mean, yeah, there she was out collecting wood and uh, uh, doing whatever it took to keep that family going as much as he did. So it was a, clearly a joint effort by those that mother and father. It was there was really a great part of the story that I liked. Totally, and you know, there's there's that great scene. I don't know if this is sort of what you're speaking to, but the scene where uh, Braddock comes home and May has sent the kids to live with her father and sister because one of them's sick, they don't have any heat, they don't have any electricity, uh, they don't have enough food, and they have that moment, which I just think is, is, you know, is rare in a movie. The wife in a boxing movie often has like, such a small or kind of like shallow part to play, but they have that great scene together where he's just like, I promised I wouldn't send him away. And she's like, well, you weren't here. You didn't see. And in that moment, it's so difficult because it's, they're both, they're both right in that instance. Absolutely. And and what they did and how they felt, uh, they both felt like they were doing absolutely the best thing they could for their family. And, and uh, yeah, that, you know, so this wasn't the beauty of this, the whole movie was it wasn't just a boxing film another thing dad you actually watched because you go above and beyond uh you watched some footage of the actual braddock bear title fight yes i did how was that i watched the the entire 15 rounds of the fight i found it to be a great fight (laughs) really yeah there again as in the movie uh they showed max bear to be the oversized uh, giant in the ring where in actuality uh, they were both basically the same height which would have been something in the ballpark of six two and a half or six three did it feel like the beats of the movie fight were were correct was it real kind of give and take it was actually it was in the very beginning of the fight uh, Braddock uh, really took control of that fight and and Bear, he was, at some points he did clown around, and I've never seen anything like it. But in that fight, Bear must have pulled. He pulled up his trunks at least three times every round. It was almost to the point of it's like, why is this person? <laughs> and at some points in that fight, he had Braddock in a lot of trouble. He hit him with a short right hand that the average person probably wouldn't have been able to. Uh, stay on their feet with and one of the things that i also looked found to be interesting was how much money that those two guys made in that fight oh how much was that um well if, if you had to guess how much would you have to guess they would have made gosh i don't even know dad like fifty thousand dollars the net receipts at the madison square garden for that fight uh, which is what they got paid off the net max bear got 42 percent of the net uh, and the net was $169,000. So Max Bear got in the ballpark of $72,000. Okay. A few thousand. Um, Braddock's take was 15%, so he got somewhere in the ballpark between twenty-five dollars to $30,000. For winning the heavyweight championship. 
But what can you say about, you know, James Braddock, the guy was an amazing guy. Yeah. You know, and just to exemplify why this would be a great Father's Day movie, uh, everything he did for his family and the pain he endured and other characters in the movie, how the toughness of what how they lived every day was amazing. Those guys standing there waiting to get jobs uh, at the dock and how hard they worked and never complained because they just wanted the opportunity. That was a, it was an amazing story on a lot of levels. I don't think I don't think there's a better ending note than that, Dad. And I hope you know that the the toughness passed down from that generation to you becomes diluted to me. And then if I ever have a child, it'll just be uh, like a piece of cotton candy, probably. So, happy Father's Day. You've been a great son, and you will be a great son. <laughs> that sounded like a parting note. Come on. <laughs> no, I. Uh... I hit the lottery when I had you for a son. There's no question about it. It's, uh, you've been a joy ever from day one. So, Thank you for letting me uh, talk at your podcast, and uh, you have a wonderful day yourself. I love you. I love you too, Dad. Happy Father's Day. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Hello, Jake. It's been a while. Uh, what's changed, Jimmy? I mean, you, you couldn't win a fight for love of money, right? I mean, how, how do you explain your comeback? Well, you know, the truth is, Jake, for a number of years there, we, we was fighting injured, you know. Uh, I broke my hand uh, more, more than once. Uh, I had a run of bad luck. So explain to me the the Dig Dug. Uh, You've told me before, but I don't remember what the... Oh, it's just a very weird thing. It was like when my mom bought her first laptop in 2003 or something, the password the default password for the Wi-Fi was like, it was a dig dug um, from Dell, from the company. And Grace and I just sort of lost our minds and started calling him that <laughs> for the next decade. At first, oh, I think he was maybe, so... I think he liked being called dad as perhaps a father might. Um, and so he was a little resistant to it at first, but certainly not like the last uh, seven or eight years. So, yeah. Oh man. Yeah. My dad still rolls his eyes when I know I have told you where Big Rod comes from, right? Um, you got remind. Well, remind the audience. In the eighth grade, my then friend Justin, for like my dad's birthday, for some reason he knew it was like my dad's birthday, <laughs> and he gave him as a gift a bumper sticker of a picture with a man with a fishing rod fishing into a lagoon that contains a mermaid. Okay. And underneath, like over top of that is written, I've got a big rod and I know how to reel them in. <laughs> <laughs> so, but he gradually warmed up to that nickname. Yeah. Well, just like we did with the, the Mother's Day edition, now that uh, son has spoken to father about the movie of Father's Choice, uh, Noah and I watched each other's family selections, and uh, we're going to break it down uh, just a little quicker than a normal episode. But uh, Noah, why don't you open us up? Your thoughts on 2005 Cinderella Man? Um, well, I feel like you and uh, your father covered a lot of good grounds with it in that, like, you know, of course there's, like, moments where history has clearly been changed in order to serve the narrative yes. that a movie must have. Um but at the same time, and the other thing I think the movie suffers from, and it's through no fault of its own except for just like the nature of Hollywood, is that it's not like one of the first boxing movies. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's close though. It's only like 50 years away. <laughs> right. Like had it been made like even 10 or 15 years earlier, like, it would have been, I think, like, one of the great movies ever made. That's a good point. But but because it was not, and it was made on the heels of, uh, what is it, the, the Clint Eastwood one? Oh, Million Dollar Baby. Million Dollar Baby, yeah. um, Ali, mm -hmm. um, Rocky, of course, yeah. Raging Bull. Yeah. Um... And just like a lot of very similar movies where you have like Paul Giamatti like in a supporting role and like it's clearly like a picture just like going for going for Oscar there. Right. It just like feels like a very worn movie. And I mean and you can tell in the response too cuz it is just you 
You're exactly right. Nobody cared. It's made. Nobody went to see this movie either. But but much like an old boxing glove, like it has the nice watchable patina of sure. like a well-made American film. Definitely. I want to. I just. I want to compliment the the cinematography because I I do think that this movie and Ali um, and Ali is can be very very boring at times and is often too much but i think the boxing sequences in that movie are amazing because they figured out and i think influenced the way kugler made creed this last year they figured out that the way to make the combat look good is to have actors agree to hit each other just a little bit and then use very quick cuts use first person camera and edit so as to set up the shots um so you're sort of creating like a piecemeal panorama of the fight and it works really well. Right. And it's interesting too, that a lot of in these action sequences, you don't actually see the punch land. Yeah. You, it's so much based on how much the camera moves because of the impact of the punch. Mm -hmm. If you notice like the camera is more jarring when the punch is more severe. And sometimes the camera is so jarring. In fact, that it just takes you to another place. Yeah. Like, and you'll see how the people react to the punch, like in the stands, but also how the people react to the punch at home, listening to it on the radio yeah yeah which is such an interesting way to cut from like craig bierko looking like a real doofus and a real asshole like about to land like a tremendous haymaker to like renee zellweger beautifully framed in this doorway just like weeping yeah it's it's a really it's a great stylistic choice um and i'm glad you brought up the crowd too i think one of the the other to transition from the the fighting to more of the texture of the movie i found myself amazed and i mean i've seen this movie a lot of times but not recently um the fluidity between the fight and the crowd is really impressive and it's something right. that the movie has earned over its runtime because you feel like you know the the desperate jersey people in the crowd and you sort of understand right. that they are one in the same with Jim even in the visual and that's that's impressive Right. Well, I mean, he interacts with these people. And that's what's so fascinating about the story is that at one point, a supporting character literally says we need something to, like, fight for. Yeah. Yeah. And then he's like, well, I guess I'll just have my dramatic return to boxing now. And you may all support me as a manifestation of the frustration you all feel. (laughs) And it works well. And it works well. And honestly, that last fight scene, the last uh, match... Yeah. is some of the most, I think, ingenious filmmaking I've ever, like, I've, I've witnessed recently. Really? Like, it's just so, how Ron Howard, when he does have control of me, the viewer, mm-hmm. like, he takes it so far, like, you were, you were like, oh my god, this fight isn't going well, like, he's gonna lose. Yeah. Like, he's, he's definitely gonna lose, yeah. and then he doesn't, and then he doesn't, and then he doesn't, and there's all these moments, and even up to the end... And I'm sorry if this spoils it for anybody, but this is history. Like, the dude wins. Yeah. Ron Howard's just, like, a master at making you think that, like, what you expect to happen isn't going to happen so much so that when it does happen, you're like, fuck yeah. (laughs) This is not the finest Russell Crowe performance. It's not the most iconic, but I think it is, in its own way, like, the most Russell Crowe part that there could be because he gets to be morally upright and good and a good father. He gets to and hurt people. He gets to hurt people. He gets to banter with Paul Giamatti, which he's quite good at. He gets to, um, I mean, he gets to Hulk. He gets to have his muscular darkness in those, like those moments of the great depression. He gets to do all the things in the course of this movie that Russell Crowe is good at. This is like a crow dream part. Absolutely. And yeah, I was looking at the other people they considered, and it was like Billy Bob Thornton no. and like what? Mark Wahlberg <laughs> and uh, Ben Affleck, and I'm like, You'd be real? No, that would never work. Um, but Maybe. yeah, but it's it's also just such a quintessentially simple film. Yes, in the style of like old Hollywood, you have like the the much grieved wife who's like just trying to like raise the kids mm-hmm. while this guy's off like. You know, putting himself in a position that I don't put myself in every day that brings me, like, brings him so much closer to dying at his job. Right. And, yeah, and then, I mean, I think Renee Zellweger is great at this, like, very simple 
role. Yeah, agreed. I mean, yeah, you. I, I think as far as the role of boxer's wife goes, which is inherently like not a very rich role, this one's pretty good. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting, too, because while this is like a Russell Crowe dream role, I felt like Ron Howard like kept a leash on him that like I love that scene with Craig Bierko, who plays Max Bayer when they're at the dinner the night before and you think they're going to like get into it like right there at the restaurant. Mm -hmm. But for no moment when you look at Russell Crowe, do you think this guy would ever fight another guy in public? Right. That's true. That's true. Which, But he's going to, like, kill him in the next scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Whereas, like, if he were Bud White or Maximus, he would have tried to take his head off right there. Right. He is not... He's not a dangerous person. And he's not necessarily even a violent person. Yeah. It's he just and that's and there's that great scene before that where he's like, "This is my occupation." Yeah, like this is my job. You know, I don't I don't just do this for to like get my jollies off. Like I know the risk. <laughs> totally. <laughs> but this is my skill set. And I think that's what makes it an interesting. I I will try to keep my historical boxing baiting to a minimum. But it's what makes <laughs> it. What's what makes it an interesting moment in history is that Jim Braddock. Really, and he was knocked out by Joe Lewis, uh, one of the great athletes of the 20th century, and truly the the entrance of like the celebrity athlete into boxing. Jim Braddock is one of the last heavyweight champions to just be a guy from somewhere. He had no amateur career. You know, he's not someone who was like built in any sort of like marketing sense. Those early 20th century fighters were all just like people with cool nicknames who like grew up strong. Well. I think we're pretty much, we're pretty much to the end here, and I I think we're we're in agreement. This is a very sort of tried and true, very traditional American film that has sappy moments and is maybe a little too long, but uh, is ultimately very good at that thing that it sets out to do. So probably a, a good good for me. Oh yeah, I'm right there with you. All right. From there, the hard pivot to uh, uh, not an American movie at all. <laughs> extremely maybe the least american english language movie i've ever seen right it's sort of the i mean if running weren't so universal it would almost be the same departure as trying to understand the rules of rugby and invictus there you go there you go um but yeah it's 1981's chariots of fire yes you synopsizing your conversation with uh rod so why don't we get into it We are here today to honor the legend. It is my sincere pleasure uh, on this Father's Day to invite my father, Big Rod, here onto Be Real Guys to discuss his favorite film. And he picked the 1981 film Chariots of Fire. Um, so we're going to talk about that for a few minutes here. So, Dad, hi. Thank you for being on the program, and happy Father's Day. Thank you so much. Yes, good afternoon. How is your Father's Day going so far? Uh, quietly, the way I like it, on a Father's Day. And uh, you got yourself a, a sort of Father's Day present this weekend. Yes, we, well, yes, with your help, we bought a car. What kind of car did you decide on? We decided on, I think, <laughs> uh, a, a Prius. So you really answered the... The 21st century, considering the car we had before that was... Uh, uh, absolutely. Time uh, to move on. A late 90s uh, Toyota. But well-loved. Uh, well-loved uh, over the course of nearly 20 years. Um, tell me about your first experience uh, and your first encounter with Chariots of Fire. Did you see it in the theater? I probably saw it in the theater. Yes, I did. Well, maybe can you synopsize the film for us? Well, it's a hard, to me, it's a hard film to, to make a synopsis of it because I think there are many different stories going on at the same time with, right. within the movie, which is, to me, what makes it interesting and, and intriguing and as, well as, the, as well as the time period. Right. But uh, on the surface, it's really two guys uh, with their own drive uh, compete to be able to, uh, together or against each other in order to be part of the British uh, uh, contingent to the 23rd Olympiad. 
right. which is sometimes in the, somewhere in the mid-20s. Right. So, yeah, what I, I think that's a really interesting point, because when I was watching this film, it's sort of tough to say, because you have these two guys, Little and Abraham, who are very opposite both in their religions, mm-hmm. both in what dictates, you know, what's driving them. Mm-hmm. And also the film sort of, it never really chooses who the protagonist of the film is. So for you, mm-hmm. watching it now here in 2016, who, do, who did you relate to more? They both had the same sort of drive, but one had certain more spiritual values uh, that he held dear. The other was uh, had a more uh, personal ones that he has also the right to achieve in this society. Uh, being a, a immigrant, actually the son of an immigrant, and being Jewish in a very strongly Christian society uh, in Britain at that time, uh, he had certain other uh, challenges uh, that he had to... Uh, had to meet in order to uh, meet the goals that he had. Right. And I think it's interesting, too, that the idea of you have someone who is... So Abraham is Jewish, of course, and Little is a devout Christian. And it doesn't seem as though that Judaism is very important to Abraham, but still he feels an outsider being Jewish, and then Little on the other side feels like an outsider because of you know, sort of the secular world in which he is forced to participate. Um, so what do you make of, like, the religious outsiderness of this film? Well, he walks into a place and he gives his name. Uh, it's sort of like the room. Everybody stops talking. You know, they didn't don't care whether he's practicing the religion, but all of a sudden he's identified himself as a Jew, and that causes all sorts of problems within Cambridge and, and other places. Uh, where he starts to um, introduce himself. Right. So I don't think religion, but I think it's commitment that is more important than religion in here. People who are committed to following what they believe. And uh, it may not be a religious belief, but it could be just the personal belief that I want to excel in this particular aspect, or I want to uh, not be forced into following something else that people want for me. Right. Because you sort of have these three competing outside things. You have Mm. God, Mm. you have country, but then you also have... Because I thought it was really funny how they shot the film, because each person has on their face a very specific emotion when they know that they're going to win Mm. or when they know that they're going to lose. So it's Mm. almost that third thing of whether it's competition or whether it's just the act of running that sort of plays into who they are. Well, I I would say it would be the act of running. At at the beginning of the film, you see the the runners uh, trotting along the beach there just looking at their faces, it's sort of the joy of running. I think it's interesting, too, for Abraham. It's not... He almost doesn't have that joy, though. He doesn't... He's no. very about control, and he's very refined in what he does, where on the other side, his competition... I mean, he describes him at one point as just, like, running like a wild animal. Right. And you can see it on his face. Right. He's just sort of excited to be right. there. Yeah. And well, that ultimately... I don't know. You can speak Well, even that. in that scene where they're running along the beach, Abraham is the one with the serious face. Right. He is not the one who's, who's smiling or, or you just feel that the, the, the director's quite good because he has made some scenes that have no words in them but give a lot of information regarding the movie. One, of course, is that scene of, of trotting along the um, sands. But mm-hmm. the other one is when these fellows arrive at Cambridge Railroad Station. And their porters for their bags are all uh, men who have gone through World War I and have been mutilated. Uh, one has to wear a, a, a mask over his face in order to uh, hide those hideous wounds. And then another one has lost his arm. And nothing much is on his face too. Yeah, and nothing much is said except the they when they get on the train. These two fellows says, "Well, you know, this is what we were fighting for. Here's this beautiful generation that's going to go to right. uh, Cambridge." And I thought it was interesting too, just talking about the sort of class system, but also like the feelings behind World War One. Yeah, I mean, even in the the uh, opening sort of freshman year speech that yes. the headmaster gives, he almost tells, I mean, he points to the wall of all the people they lost in World War One, and right. he almost says that 
on your shoulders, you as the new students have mm-hmm. the responsibility to do what these guys were not given the opportunity to do. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's a lot of pressure, but I feel like that's almost a microcosm for the seriousness with which these guys then interact with, you know, if it's whether running around the courtyard mm-hmm. and trying to beat yeah. this 700 year record mm-hmm. um, or eventually going to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. But I feel like. You know, I mean, in a uh, historical context, did you feel like there was this sort of pressure on that coming of age generation right after World War One that they needed to be so much better than and just to make up for all the young men that were lost? That's why I think that look that you see on one of the uh, students, the Cambridge students, as he gets on the train, when he sees these two wounded veterans, his he, he can't take his eyes off them. Right. Was this what it was like? You know, maybe this was his first introduction to what what the war really was about. So I don't think they come with a great deal of information on it. Right. Uh, officials or, or, or deans in, in Cambridge were raised and, and are, are, the point of view is to prepare people to enjoy their place in an aristocratic society. Now they've got Harold Abrams, who's not a landed gentry. He's not the the aristocratic landowner. He's the son of a financier, a Jewish financier in London. And they don't know what to do with that. And what's happening now is we're we're seeing a changeover in the society now, you say, after the war, where you see a great deal of social change. World War I was the first time women started to work a lot. And there were a lot of other social changes during the war that were felt after it. So uh, that I I feel that uh, they don't know how to handle this, but they're sort of afraid. Interesting. So let me ask... You know, I feel like when I come home to visit you guys, uh, more often than not, I'll come down in the night and see you watching Independence Day or Jurassic Park or Executive Decision or Mutiny on the Bounty or something like that. So I was sort of surprised when you said that this was your favorite movie and that this is the movie you wanted to talk about. So what about this movie makes it your favorite? I, I think it's somewhat, it, it, it just covers so many different aspects of, of the story. It wasn't limited just to, you know, it wasn't like a, a, a rocky story where, you know, somebody comes from the bottom and, and, and wins. Or it, it, competition, yes, is terribly important to it. But I think the, the, the setting is important. What it, it's a very British picture. So the setting and, and how, it affects, how it affects Britain uh, at that time, was very it's very much of my interest. Interesting enough, the name Chariots of Fire comes from a poem written by William Blake called Jerusalem, and it is probably the most popular um, song sung at sports rallies after the national God Save the Queen. In fact, they're now they're they're wondering whether. Uh, uh, they should change it to something else since it is it is sort of religious, but it is extremely popular in sports settings, and uh, that that may not be uh, caught by American audiences too much, but um, again that uh, appeals to me as a as a big and I see different things in it. Uh, the idea that the um, the the trainer who's being you know Sam. Musabini. Musabini. Sam Musabini. Here he is, a foreigner, half Italian, half Arab, uh, and is being paid as a trainer. Now, this element of you know, commerce coming into the uh, you know, the purity of Olympics uh, gets people a little uh, upset, but not Harold Abrams because he wants to you know uh, win. Uh, right. One I one thing I have to, should say is that um, the acting is 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 really fine. You'll notice a host of, of fine British actors in this whole in this whole uh, thing, which I, you know to me just makes it a, a pure joy to watch to see these guys work. Right, and this was a Best Picture winner too uh, yes. in '81. Yes, indeed. Um, and did any of this sort of I mean, not to disclose too much about you, but did any of this sort of religious back and forth sort of I mean I don't know if I because mean, when presumably when you first saw this movie you were a Christian and now when you're seeing it again you're a Jew so does that play into it at all and what this it makes to me you? more sensitive to it 
Uh, but I, you know, I, I knew that uh, this was going to happen. Sure. Uh, uh, as, you know, as it did in uh, in the United States. I mean, uh, uh, people in union high professional groups uh, were you know kept out or made made to feel uh, you know isolated. One final question. Sure. Um, since you are the father of two, and I feel like my film taste is definitely influenced by the movies that you've exposed me to, and I'm sure that my brother Nate, his uh, tastes as well. What do you feel like, what sort of gift would you like to give to your kids in terms of film taste and what you think is important in a film? Ah. Uh. It's not the film itself, I think, that's important. <clears throat> it's how it's made. What are the virtues of it? Uh, if it's nothing but sort of frivolous things, well, that's fine. That's good for the, the midnight I need to go to sleep uh, sort of deal. But if it's something like Chariots or Fire or some of the great the great movies, first of all, they things that you can see over and over and, and get uh, a different um, or additional thoughts on it. Art is there to be studied and uh if a good if a movie like that you know piques your interest and and uh is fine other movies will do that too but it's also going along with your enjoying good literature or enjoying good music so it's going to be you know a, a multifaceted process going over time great well dad thank you so much for being on the podcast you're happy, welcome happy father's day well thanks so much and it was a, a sincere pleasure uh revisiting this film with you so thanks so much i'm glad you liked it i mean speaking of athletics being funny athletics are very funny in this movie it's funny because this movie sort of like doesn't is so either is so fascinated with like the weird faces people make when they're <laughs> running or just like doesn't give a fuck that it looks ridiculous. I could not deal with uh, um, the fact that with with Little's like orgasm upturned face every time at the end of the well, race. that's when he's like really connecting with God. I mean, like, that's the point. Like mm. when he gets to that moment, like the whole point of the movie is building up to what do they feel when they get to that moment when they know that they're like when they reach that apex. Yeah, which is weird. Like as sports movies go, I felt like this movie was kind of like this movie had never seen other sports movies. Oh, certainly not. Well, that's the interesting thing about this movie that I think I had to get over was that it's not a sports movie. Yeah. Like it doesn't like, you know, in a movie like Cinderella, man, like that last, you know, two hours of actual real life time in this match or whatever. How long is a match usually? An hour? Yeah, like 45 minutes. Well, that was like a third of the movie. Right. And this one, like scenes that they could have drawn out for like minutes were like brief. Yeah, they were brief, just like the actual events were. Because ultimately, it was a movie about these characters realizing what success meant to them. Mm-hmm. It's not about them overcoming. And I think it was like what my dad was sort of getting into was that it's a movie about like that weave. It's not about like just the oh, it's a sports movie, like yada yada. Sure. Like Rocky. Right. Uh, yeah, I I agree with that. I I will say though that in its in it's not being that sports movie, I I felt like I I wanted for more character drama, and I wanted for more personality, and I wanted for more um, more showing of their struggle, and more like more scene showing of their struggle, and yeah. less them talking about it. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, like the scenes they do show like the scenes like just the the visual choices they make about like you know never introducing us to abraham's father yeah like i think would have been a big one but instead giving him the father role of ian holm which nobody has how old is that guy (laughs) i have in my notes this movie proves that ian holm has been 70 for 40 years it's just it almost feels like something that should have been a mini series on like pbs yeah with a lot more depth to it. Right. And because, well, that's, I think, the ultimate thing about the movie that's so baffling to me is, like, 
Because it, it has two protagonists of two ultimately parallel stories, right? Right, but their relationship... Go ahead. Well, th- I mean, their relationship is the quote-unquote connective tissue of the movie, but they don't really have that much of a like an overlap. No, they don't. Especially at the end when you would think that it would matter. Like, I guess if you were rewriting this movie nine times out of ten, how are they not competing in the final race, you know? Right, that's the thing. You don't build these two guys up to ultimately, like the guy doesn't compete on Sunday, so he doesn't end up racing him. Yeah, yeah. And so so he just ends up competing with these Americans who we only meet like ten minutes to the end of the film. Right. I, I think this movie also sort of like wanted for winks, you know, like winks that it was the 80s talking about the 20s but the movie was so reverent it didn't have but i think one of the few winks that i really enjoyed was the training (laughs) sequence of the american team just how like muscular and brutish these like british viewers would have thought them to be well i mean it's like a very british production of something that like attempts to portray americans and like maybe hasn't met that many except for the ones they've encountered in hollywood right right let me put it this way i think this is a a movie that is mapped like 75 percent of the way to oscar gold like it understands with the funeral in the present tense and aubrey being sort of like a half nick caraway that doesn't really pan all the way out and right. um well he's not in the movie long enough no, he doesn't have his he, own story no, yeah you think he's gonna be the yeah you think he's gonna be the you lens to Abraham's. The prota- in a better movie of this he is the protagonist and he's like drawn to the spirituality of little but like ultimately friends with absolutely so and then you like have him being like um f murray abraham from amadeus recalling his like interaction with this guy yep so yeah i feel like it's mapped most of the way to being an Oscar winner, which it was an Oscar winner, but I feel right. like it really lacked some of the dramatic connective tissue, some of like what we in America <laughs> like understand to be like some movie making. And and I think honestly, if you want to talk about uh, a of like a very epic, um, serious movie that used its modern vantage point to look at the past um, in the way of an outsider, look to your mom's choice out of Africa, which right. we found so impressive. Um, and I think like used Streep and Redford's stardom with some winks and some modern writing to make it work. Uh, and this movie just didn't do that. The two leads are pretty like lone wolves. So it's weird to have ultimately what is three movies. The movie <laughs> about Abraham's training with um, Ian Holm yeah. and then winning a gold medal. Uh, Little's uh, decision to not run on Sunday at the Olympics and sort of like a Christian Sandy Koufax, not pitching on Yom Kippur <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And then the movie about everyone around the Olympics in Paris, like post world war one right so when it comes to judgment uh, i mean i i want to defer to you because I'm, I'm not here to be uh rude to I big think rod this no, no no you don't have to be rude to big rod i think this is i mean this appeals to a sensibility of somebody who i mean likes a more serious film yeah um because it asks some big questions of like when is greatness achieved right and like that's a, a weighty thing but ultimately, though, I don't think this is that watchable. Oh, definitely film not watchable. <laughs> for, like, the lay person. The average cinema goer will say, like, this movie's, like, kind of boring. So for that reason, I will give it all due respect, my dear father, a good, bad. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, I, I want you to know that I might have gone harsher than that because what we're talking about are structural problems, but I will also give it a good bad. Well, I mean, the structural problems you have with it are like what separates it from being like a cool runnings or like what? a Cinderella man <laughs> or like a. Well, don't. I, I mean, mean, like movies about people, you know, working to go to the Olympics and then competing there and seeing whether or not they win, right? Yeah. But also, that is like, ultimately the structure you're looking for, or you're looking for like a more dead poet society kind of film. Yeah, I just don't want to pretend that I that people would have lesser tastes for being like, hey, all of these characters leave me cold because they're not connected and I don't know them. Like that's a problem <laughs> with the movie. Um. Yeah. 
So, but I will say good, bad as well. I don't agree completely, but I see what you're saying. Did you, did you really feel like I'm with this person with a lot of people in this movie? I mean, I just, it's a different style of acting than I think like in an American sports movie you're looking for. Like these are people who, for me, the performances were what was entertaining, what was good about the movie. Okay. Like I thought you had a lot of like classically trained British people like trying to do what could have been easily mounted as like a Disney movie in 1981 equivalent to like million dollar arm. <laughs> okay. Point, but it wasn't. It that. was treated, it was treated like a serious British like period PBS right. drama. Right. I don't know. I think it shines enough of a light, yeah. but I'm going to call it good, bad, and you better fucking get on the same page. All right. Okay. I'll get on your, your relay team for this. Um, no, thanks pal. You're welcome. Dad pod. Dad pod. Uh, this was fun, man. Thanks. This was so fun. I think it's, I think it's great that, you know, like our moms both picked movies basically about like motherhood uh, our dads <laughs> inversely picked a very specific category of like <laughs> sports movies based on true stories <laughs> from the early part of the 20th century. Yeah. Oh man. And, uh, but I like how your dad like picked a story of like victory and like overcoming obstacles to like win in the end. And then like my dad picked the, the one where it's like, even if you win a gold medal, there's like a good chance you're going to be completely miserable still. <laughs> Yeah, he was more in it for the socio-political minutiae. Right, he was more in it for that post-World War I uh, zeitgeist. Yes, indeed. That's funny. Chance, is the next podcast where we're reunited? I believe so, man. It's next week, you and me. Dude, I'm so excited. Me too, in New York City. Uh, and you should be excited, listener, for what we're covering. I've got some weird guest asks out there, but I don't know if any will come true. Um, it's right in our wheelhouse, though, for sure. Absolutely. I'm very uh, very excited about it. Follow us on Twitter at BeRealGuys, uh, real with two E's, like a film reel. Find all of our past episodes on BeRealGuys.com. You can listen on your phone with uh, SoundCloud or Stitcher or Google Play Music or, of course, your iTunes podcast app. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can email us. You can do all of these things. We really appreciate your time. And... Uh, and I appreciate you putting up with our uh, paternal indulgences. Noah Ballard. Right. Yeah, thank you so much to uh, Doug Pfeiffer and uh, Rod Ballard, my father. Yes, indeed. Uh, who I hope is enjoying his Prius right now. And uh, yeah, pal. Buddy, I'll talk to you next time. This has been a real pleasure. See you soon. Oh, New York beckons. Mama just hung her head and said, son... Papa was a rolling stone